Now it's on. <laughs> Golly, you'd think we hadn't done this before. Well, good morning, GPC. It is good to see you, those here, those in the gym. I did go over and get to see them and sit with my family over there for just a minute. And some are watching online, live streaming, some will watch later. But I do want to say this, there are seats in the sanctuary, so if some of you feel that you would like to join us in person and be in the sanctuary and not in the gym, there's the chance to do that. Just remember to register online. Now that I've said that, it might be hard to get a seat. Maybe not, but um, there are seats if you want to gather in person in, in the sanctuary. For these weeks together, we have been looking at Scripture with the question, what is the church? And each week I've told you that we are tempted, every one of us, to fill in the blank of what the church is and to do it according to tradition. That in our mind, well, the church has always been this. It looks like this. And maybe we picture a traditional building with a steeple, um, pretty landscaping, manufactured landscaping, and, and, and just beauty in a physical structure. Some of us have personal preferences about the church. And we would say, well, the church should be this. It, it meets at a certain time. It looks like this. And its, its worship should look like this. And what we've been doing each week, hopefully you see, is looking at what the church is according to Scripture. Not to personal preference. Not to tradition. Not to gut instinct. But what does the Bible say about the people of God? And in particular, who we're supposed to be in the world. Who you and I are supposed to be outside of the walls of the church. And I hope that you see that more and more Jesus is painting a portrait of a people that is very holy. It's very different. Last week we said it's it's an otherworldly kind of people. And we're going to see more of that this morning as we go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, or closer to the beginning, and probably familiar words to you, but you know my hope is that we always hear it with new ears and with fresh ears. So give your attention to the kind of kingdom character that God is calling us to be in a sin-darkened world. Listen to God's word. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father 
who is in heaven. Let's pray for understanding and application of God's holy word. Lord, would you grant us clarity of our calling? Would you grant us conviction of our sinful shortcoming? And Lord, would you this morning remind us that our hope has always been in the gospel? We ask this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who had young boys, who have reared young boys, or maybe for those of you who in the last 25 years were a young boy, you might recognize the name Thomas the Train. So we've raised three boys, and two of our three have been enamored by Thomas the Train, Thomas the Tank Engine. And if you're not familiar at all with this, here's, here's the idea. Thomas the Tank Engine was a locomotive steam engine on the island of Sodor. And Thomas is a very small train, but he always has big aspirations. Every episode, and believe me, I've seen almost all of them with my boys, every episode revealed Thomas's constant effort to prove himself a worthy engine. Though small, he wanted to take on large tasks in an effort to prove himself by the end of the episode. And if you watched it, you see that at the end of just about every episode, Thomas earns the words that he labored for. And that was Sir Topham Hatt, the head of the railway, saying what? Thomas, you really are a useful engine. Right? Kids, people, men, am I shooting in the air at nothing right now? Thomas, you really are a useful engine. And, and all the little boys are like, yes, pulling for little Thomas. And every week he takes on a big task and he may have a little failure along the way. But in the end, Thomas is declared a useful engine. Now, there's a very real sense in which that is part of the story that is going on with Jesus talking to his disciples. He's talking to them about how they can be declared useful kingdom people in the earth, that they really are useful. And so it's, in a sense, it's a call to usefulness. It's Jesus is calling his people to have kingdom character, to make them really useful, to make them redemptive, redemptive people in the world. And here he says that looks like this, being salt and light in a sin-darkened world. So Jesus wants to declare his people to be useful, not useless. At the end of the story, that it might be said of his people, well done, good and faithful or useful servants. And so three simple points this morning, and that is a calling, a warning, and a reminder for God's people. 
Jesus has gathered His disciples to Himself. You need to know that. He's not talking to the world in these sentences. He's talking to His very close and intimate disciples. And that's an important context. And to them, He gives this calling. A calling to be salt, a calling to be light, a calling to be useful. And so I want to explain these, and I know you're very familiar, some of you, with all of this. But I'm speaking to those who've maybe never even heard of these concepts before, as well as to you, to remind you of some gospel truth that is here for all of us. So what does it mean for Jesus to say to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth? Did he mean that you are to be sodium chloride? A one-to-one, solid, chemical compound? No, but there are, there's a nature and there are traits to that mineral. And that's what salt was. That's what salt is. It's a mineral. And as a mineral, you and I know it best as a natural flavor enhancer. Salt makes food taste better. It just does. And it doesn't take a lot of salt. How much salt do you need for your green beans? In comparison to the green beans, not very much. But a little bit of salt makes all the difference in the world. And this is part of the imagery and why Jesus would refer to His people being the salt of the earth. One aspect of that is that they are to enhance and make things better. Salt is good. Salt is powerful. Salt is awesome, but that's not the only thing that was true of salt. It wasn't just a mineral that made food taste better as a seasoning. Perhaps more importantly is that these people, this first audience, they understood that salt was a useful preservative. Salt had the power to keep meat from spoiling, and they used it in that way. They would coat their meat with salt, and that salt would penetrate and help to kill germs and prevent germs, and it would make meat, which was a very good thing, it would make meat last longer. To nourish people, to feed people, to make food enjoyable for longer. And so salt was a real blessing. It was a great blessing, both as a preservative and as a seasoning. He also said to them, you're to be the light of the world. And that was just as simple as salt. Light for them in this way that Jesus is using it, it was an ordinary oil-burning house lamp. An ordinary oil-burning house lamp that would have been placed on a pedestal and it would have been used to maximize illumination in darkness. Right? You put it on a pedestal, you raise it up, and you let its light just shine and chase darkness away. And Jesus then says, nobody takes a bowl, and that would have been a wooden vessel used to measure grain, probably about two gallons, commentators say. So just picture a big two-gallon bowl. Jesus says, you don't take a big bowl and put it on top of the light. And when Jesus says that, you know, that's a silly illustration. And he's making a point. I wonder if the disciples chuckled a little bit as he said that. 
No man takes a bowl and puts it over a lamp. (laughs) Of course they don't. That would nullify the whole purpose of the lamp. That's silly. And Jesus says, don't you do it either. Don't let your light not shine and be seen because of something silly and foolish like putting a bowl over the light, destroying the very purpose of having it in the first place. And so Jesus uses these simple common elements of salt and light, things we are very familiar with. And he says, that's who you, if you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus, that's who you're supposed to be in the world. That's who you're supposed to be in the earth. Not just adults, not just adult disciples, all disciples, youth, kids, whole family units. We're to have this salty and light influencing influence on the world. Put in my own language, and as I've talked to students about this through the years, I've talked about it in terms of Christians are supposed to supposed to make things better. Just the way that salt makes food better. Our presence, our mere presence, is supposed to make things better, not worse. Or, same thing, said a little dif- differently, we're supposed to be a people who, who fix broken things. Not who break things. We're, we're to be redeemers, fixers. Right? Think of your experience. There's somebody in your life that when something goes wrong, you're like, well, let me call them because they'll know what to do. They'll know how to fix it. That's a redeeming influence. When something breaks physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, we're to be the salt and the light in the world that understand redemption and how broken things are made right and how things can be made better when they're in line with their heavenly creator. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great quote. This is actually a combination of a couple of things he said in his commentary about what he calls the business of salt. And I want you to hear this as it relates to this idea. He says, the function of the Christian in the world is to be salt. Now, what is the business of salt? It is to prevent putrefaction. It is to work against decay, rot, and ruin. It is to act as an antiseptic, working against the germs that are on and in the meat. To preserve the food for good use. Christians in the world are to work as salt. So if you're keeping score, we maybe just added a word to our vocabulary, and that's putrefaction. To putrefy, to decay, to rot, to ruin. This world is in a state of putrefaction. It's a world of decay, rot, and ruin. Things are disintegrating and falling apart. They're not in right relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, and they're decaying because of that. And Jesus is saying to His disciples, in this decaying, rotting, dying world, you are salt. And you are light to illumine the path for how people can connect with their Heavenly Father. 
That's quite a job description for the church, isn't it? And maybe that's really part of the title of this sermon and this series is, what's our job description? Who are we supposed to be? You know, I thought when I went to the grocery store, it was just about me going to get my groceries. I thought when I went to the gym, it was just about me going to the gym. I thought when it was me going to the coffee shop, it was just about me and the cup of coffee. But Jesus is saying, when you go to those ordinary places as an ordinary oil-burning lamp, you represent me. And you're to be salt and light wherever you go and however you get there. At the workplace, cutting grass, doing chores with family or with friends or with neighbors. Everything we do is to be salt and light. God says He uses us. He has sprinkled us in the earth to have those kinds of influences in the world. We're to be like our Heavenly Father, redeeming broken things, making things better. Now, if you do a little self-evaluation and you're like, wow, I've not been redeeming broken things. I've been breaking things. I've been hurting people with my tongue, with my relationships. I've been sloppy at work, lazy at work. I show up to class late. I turn in half-hearted papers. My heart's not anything that I do. Well, then this sermon should bring a ton of conviction at this point. Especially as we transition into point number two in just a minute. But we really are supposed to have this redemptive influence in the earth. So a few illustrations. What does salt look like? This ordinary salt, this ordinary light in the earth. Well, I think we may have seen a glimpse of salt this week as I was paying attention to the local and even the national news. It seems to me from my humble little perspective that some Christians bound together, work together, and somehow in God's favor, with God's favor, worked to have the state of South Carolina sign a heartbeat bill. And if you listen to those who were leading the charge in this, they talked about their faith. They talked about Sunday school teachers and churches praying for this and that they believed this was the fruit of faithfulness. Now, regardless of your political positions or affiliations or even your views, at this point, I would just humbly and boldly suggest, I think that is salt. I think that is light. I think that's a, that's a vivid example of the church trying to be the church in the world. The people of God trying to bring kingdom character, kingdom values on the things that they can redemptively influence. Now that's a pretty big example. Things like that don't happen very long or very often. Perhaps maybe in a lifetime we see significant things. And who knows what the outcome of that will, will actually be. I understand it. Different obstacles could still prevent themselves. So here's something a little bit more down to earth for the average day-to-day -day living layperson. It was several years ago, I was the campus minister at Erskine, 
and I was sitting in a Mexican restaurant with a student. And let's just say the conversation was him sincerely trying to battle uh, against his abuse of drugs and alcohol. And as I talked with him, it was in the month of October, it was the fall, I remember that, and he was sharing with me his, his personal battle with alcohol, and he said, I just, I just can't drink enough. He, and I said, what do you mean when you say you just can't drink enough? I said, how many beers is enough? And he looked me in the eyes and he said, 18. And I, I remember saying, 18 beers? How thirsty are you? He said, I just can't get enough. And I tried to help him anticipate, well, where is it that you tend to stumble? Where is it that you tend to fall? Where are you most prone to tripping and falling on your face? And he started to talk about parties and being invited in certain circumstances. And right around the corner was Halloween. And there was to be a big Halloween party. And he was like, I just, I'm not going to survive that. If I go to that, I'm not going to survive. And I said, well, I appreciate your honesty. I said, what do you need to be able to avoid that party? And he said... I need other people to gather with. I've got to be around other people who aren't going to make me inclined to drink. And I said, you mean like an alternative party to go to where alcohol's not going to be front and center? He said, yeah, just anything to help me not be in that situation. So some of you maybe have watched online, if you're on social media, you'll see that for years we have thrown this party with Erskine students called Boo at the Barn. A Halloween party. And some people would say, now why is he doing a Halloween party? He shouldn't be doing that. Well, we put that party together years ago as an alternative place for this guy to go. To have a party and friends to gather with on Halloween so that he didn't go to the other party. And if he just needed some Christians to be around and a reason to gather, to be shoulder to shoulder with some people, and to enjoy a college party without alcohol, well, maybe that's what salt and light could look like for him. We'll cook some food. We'll gather some people. We'll give you a reason to gather. Salt and light can be as simple as giving people an opportunity to be around a different kind of people. And so salt and light are effective because they're on the meat or they're near the meat. And I would say to you, I want to challenge and encourage you. Some of us need to get out of the salt shaker. Salt loves being together with the salt, but we need to be sprinkled. There are people out there that you can have a redemptive friendship with and influence with that God can use you as salt and light, but it can be comfortable to be in the salt shaker with all the salt. But we've got to have eyes that see God is at work. And he says, we're to be the salt. We're to be the light of the world. Now, let me say, that does not mean you need to date or marry or whatever as salt and light as a ministry. I'm just talking about word and deed ministry. 
Being a good friend. Having eyes to see the people around you. You've got to make these decisions with wisdom, but we need to be the truth tellers and the truth livers in the world. That's what God has called us to be. Listen to these few passages. Listen to how we're to be the salt and the light. Acts chapter 13, verse 47. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Romans chapter 10, verse 15. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Which is to say, you are well received by people when it's your feet that brings good news to them. Titus chapter 2, verse 10. In every way, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Live a beautiful life among unbelieving people. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Isn't that beautiful? He uses us, poor pitiful us, to be the agents of redemption of His gospel. To go out as salt and light into all the corners of the earth. And that's hard. And that can be uncomfortable. But God calls us to be those kinds of people. We just sang about it. Take my life and let it be. Take my heart, take my hands, take my feet, take my love, and let them all be used by you, Heavenly Father, for the sake of serving and loving humanity. The truth is, some of us are tempted, and the church has always been tempted to abandon the world. Now listen to me. World's going to hell. Church is going to be saved. Let's just keep it in here. Right? That's how we can think. But God says He's using us to redeem the earth, to call a people out of darkness and into light. And some of you have done this, and I know you've done this. You've invited people to church. You're seeking to befriend neighbors and co-workers. And that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Everybody's invited. Everybody's welcome. Everybody come to the party. Come celebrate at this party. Those are kind of the kind of welcoming, warm, receiving, greeting people we're supposed to be. Out of the salt shaker upon the earth. Salt rubbed on the meat. It's got to have contact with the meat, right? You can have a big steak on your plate, salt shaker sitting next to it, never the two will meet. Or you can put just a little bit, if my doctor's listening, just a little bit of salt on there to season it to make things better, to make things as good as they can be. Those are the kinds of people we're supposed to be in the earth Jesus says, we don't abandon the world. That's the error of the monastic monks who hid in the tower, right? We'll just go study the Bible in the tower. 
sin's out there in the world, we're going to avoid it, and it's just going to be us and the salt shaker. No. We're to engage the world. I want to give you a few brief examples of how this has looked in history. No real details, but just, just the idea. Think about what you know, and some of you know a whole lot, about hospitals. Why do so many of them have church-connected names? Mount Sinai, Baptist Hospital, Mercy Hospital. Because Christians, the church, said it's our duty to minister to a sick and dying world. And we'll put our resources to it because we're the church in the world. That's why so many hospitals across not just our country but the world have Christian origins to them. The same thing could be said of education. Of trying to bring Christ to the heart of education and having Christian institutions of thought and learning. Or adoption agencies. Christians have started adoption agencies. It's been our drive, our passion of the church to protect life and to create hope for families. Crisis centers of various kinds, whether substance abuse, pregnancy, whatever the crisis. I had a great meeting with the Greenwood Greater United Ministries this week and learn so much about what is available to those hurting in Greenwood. It is a good ministry. GPC supports that ministry, and it is a worthy one. It's Christians, it's the church who have had the passion to create ways to be salt and light in a sin-darkened, hurting world. And that's good. That's how it should be. But you too, I too can do these things having a redemptive influence just through personal relationships, being that friend who's always available to listen or to pray or to encourage or just to help, to lend your services, your back, your strength, to offer a meal, to offer a cup of coffee, a conversation. Salt and light looks like that as much as it looks like a hospital or an adoption agency. You in the workplace being a faithful presence of Christ can mean so much to people. I've heard a lot of stories through the years. You know, GPC has a lot of doctors in its congregation. And I have heard several people say that in the midst of their great fear, what joy they found in having a Christian doctor tend to them. A familiar face brings comfort, but a Christian doctor who would pray with their patient. I had that happen. It wasn't a GPC doctor, but the episode I told you a few weeks ago when I was suddenly in the emergency room, my doctor who stitched my chin that I'd split open found out I was a Christian, and he prayed for me. And I remember being like, I didn't know you could do that. That's pretty great. And he did, and it touched me. It moved me. I saw Christians in the workplace and their faith was a priority, and it was a beautiful thing. Some of you are teachers, you're counselors, you have influence on people, and, and sometimes you think, oh, what I do doesn't really matter, but it does. You're salt and light. You're the very presence of God at work in the world. And those of you who are at home with children, don't you dare think, oh, well, I just I can't apply this sermon because... I'm just at home. 
No, it's those children who are the arrows in your quiver who will be the salt and light sent out from your home into the world. This is the job description of every one of us who claims to be a disciple. We're to be salt. We're to be light. And only now we're getting to our second point in the sermon, which is a warning. Jesus says, if the salt loses its saltiness, it is to be thrown out and trampled. Well, that's, that's a warning just like it sounds. Now, some of you, my science people listening, right now you're thinking, but I object. Sodium chloride cannot lose its salinity. Well, that may be true. I'm not going to argue that. But I will share with you this quote from Rob Rayburn on that. He says this, Pure salt cannot actually lose its salinity. It is chemically stable. But this proverb about salt losing its saltiness was already in common use in the Judaism of that day. The salt in use in Judea and Galilee was quite impure. It was derived by evaporation from material dug from the shores of the Dead Sea. And so what was called salt included other minerals such as gypsum. Now this is important. That mixture could lose its salinity if the sodium chloride gradually was leached out of it. And here we have an important point. In this world, none of us are pure salt and light. We're impure. There are days we're not so salty at all. Or we're salty in the way the world would define the word, right? There are days that our light is just not shining very bright. It's, It's a little flickering torch, as one of our hymns says. There is no pure salt and light other than Jesus Himself. And we're also reminded that it's possible for the salinity to be leached out of us. To lose our saltiness because we're impure. You know, whether it's water being saturated that leaches out the salinity, or maybe proximity to another substance that will leach out and pull out the saltiness. Those of you who are science people can inform me on this later. The point seems to be, it is possible for saltiness to be leached out. And so the question to ask is, has your saltiness been leached out? And if so, by what or by whom? It's possible over time or with proximity to a leaching substance that our saltiness can seem to go away. And we're more worldly than we are godly. Beware the things that leach you of your saltiness. Identify the things, the the people, the things that are leaching your saltiness. Because Jesus gives a very stern and sobering warning that salt that is not salty is as good as sand. You wouldn't sprinkle sand on your green beans, I trust. Jesus says it's only good to be thrown out and trampled by foot. It's worthless. And that's a a sobering challenge. It's a warning. How salty are you? 
Are you salty? Does your light shine at all? Are you one who seeks to make things better? Are you one who seeks to fix broken things? Do people say of you, now there's a good guy, there's a good girl. He can be trusted. She can be trusted. I want them near me because they make me better. Right? That's another way to think of it. Or are you being leached of your saltiness? I could give negative examples. I'll do this very quickly. Um, Media has been filled. Filled with stories of celebrities, celebrity Christians who have fallen profoundly. And you can look at these stories as they unfold. I'm not going to mention names. Uh, But you you can ask now, what leached them of their saltiness? These celebrity Christian figures. And that should be an oxymoron, shouldn't it? Uh, celebrity Christians, celebrity pastors. But it seems to be the things that have leached them would be the love of attention and self-promotion, the love of money, sexual immorality, the lack of accountability. Those are things that will leach you of your saltiness in a hurry. And they'll reveal your sinful heart for what it is. That's a negative example. Let me give one positive example because I don't like seeming too negative. I remember years ago when we moved to the area, we've been here 19 years almost, it did not take long for us to begin to experience a small clan of Christians in the due west and I know the Greenwood area, the Abbeville County area for sure. And these were people that you'll recognize them as probably as I described them. But as we heard other people talk about these Christians, this clan of Christians, it was said, they are great. They just make things better. We are so glad they moved here to open their cabinetry businesses, their bakeries, their good mechanics. When these people do stuff, they never overcharge. They're honest. They're faithful. They just make the community so much better. And we have found that only to be true. These are a Christian people who, man, everybody praises them because they make things better. And they literally fix broken things and they don't overcharge you for it. That's the kind of reputation that the Christian church should have in the world. Well-received, celebrated for faithfulness, celebrated for righteousness, for doing things the right way. And again, I just want to encourage you, whatever you're doing in your life, whatever your six-day labor is, faithfulness and righteousness, you being faithful and righteous in that space, just showing up and being faithful and righteous. You can even be quiet be a quiet, timid little personality. But your faithfulness and your righteousness is salt and light in a sin-darkened world. And you should be greatly encouraged in that. You don't have to be a big, loud celebrity. You can be that introvert to the glory of God. Now, I'll finish with this. Third point is a reminder And that is the good news of the gospel. But it does not come without this 
truth. If you are a salty person in the way the Bible talks about the word, if you're a faithful person, don't be surprised or discouraged when the world rejects you. Because it will happen. One of our hymns, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, we sing, let the world despise and leave me, for they have left my Savior too. Right? What's happened to our Savior is going to happen to us in this world, by this world. And in, in Scripture, we're reminded, Isaiah 53 verse 3 told us to prepare, prepare for the fact that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by mankind. He would be a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he would be despised and held in low esteem. John chapter 15, Jesus told his disciples, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And then in John chapter 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so in all this, we're reminded, well, wait a second. There was no more pure salt and bright shining light than Jesus himself. And the world put him to death. And Jesus said, as you grow more and more in my likeness and my image, as you become more salty, as you become more light bearing, don't be discouraged or surprised if the world rejects you, despises you, forsakes you, makes fun of you seeks to harm you and persecute you because that's what they did to Jesus. And they will do it to His church. And in the end, we're reminded of this. That Jesus Himself was trampled. In His teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, He said worthless salt should be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But he who was the pure salt, he was trampled. He was trampled by us. He was trampled for us. And likewise, he says that salt was to be thrown out, discarded. Well, Jesus was crucified, remember, outside the camp. Outside of Jerusalem. Removed and crucified, cast out side of the camp. And He has done this because He is our salt. He is our light. What He said should happen to those who fail as salt and light, though He was pure salt and light, He willingly had done to Himself. And that's the good news of the Gospel that we celebrate. We're called to be salty. We're called to be light. And we're not salty. And we're pretty dark. And the one who was perfect salt, perfect light, he was extinguished by sinful men for three days until he rose again and now sits at the right hand of God the Father 
Almighty. We are called somehow strangely, as sinful and pitiful as we are as the church, and we are sinful and pitiful. Jesus tells us we're to be the ones that seek to preserve the world, that seek to season the earth, that seek to bring illumination by His Word. And if you really buy into how sinful Scripture says we are, there's a sense in which we should shake our heads and say, how can we have any redemptive influence whatsoever? How can the church have any success in its job description? Well, that leads us to our closing hymn. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. You know, if it was left to you and in your own power to be pure salt and bright light, we don't have any hope. But it's God at work in us. The great Redeemer taking us and using us as instruments of redemption in the earth. So there's great hope for you in your six days of labor to be salt and light. For those of you who are students at school on teams, uh, you can be salt and light wherever you are because God is at work through His church. That's the job description, to be salt and to be light. And even for those who are not so salty, those who have dim lights, God is at work. He always has been. Yet not I, but Christ through me. Let's pray together. Father, that is our prayer. Lord, would you work through us? Would you take our hands, our feet, our hearts, our love, our whole lives? Would you do something with them? Something redemptive, something beautiful. Would you keep us salty? And would you make our lights shine brightly? We ask this for the good of Greenwood and for the good of the world. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.